so yeah, welcome to this live AMA with uh, Rob Mather, CEO of the Against Malaria Foundation. I'm Toby Tremlett, the EA Forums Content Manager. So if you're interested in effective altruism, you've probably heard of Rob's charity, the Against Malaria Foundation. For almost two decades, they've been doing crucial work to protect people, especially children from malaria. To date, around 450 million people have been protected with malaria bed nets from this charity. Once all of their currently funded nets have been distributed, AMF estimates it would have prevented 185,000 deaths. Uh, and it's not just AMF saying this, they've been a GiveWell top charity since 2009. So to get straight into the AMA, and we're gonna keep the answers pretty short and snappy, I think Rob said he's gonna to stick to two minutes per answer. And yeah, Rob, thank you for making the time for coming along for this. Pleasure. So on the theme of making the time, somebody said that they've they've organized two small fundraisers with AMF. And in both cases, you were incredibly proactive and helpful, taking time to immediately respond to emails and hop onto calls. They say many thanks, but a question remains. Where do you find the time and which time management strategies do you use? And you have two minutes of time. <laughs> Go. I don't use any particular strategies, I'm afraid. I think what I would say is... We certainly leverage technology here so that a lot of the things that I perhaps would normally do as a CEO of a charity, I don't do because technology takes over. And perhaps I can give a couple of examples. One of the things that we have to do as a charity is we have to file our accounts. We have to do that in our case in 14 countries. And there are typically between 10 and 15 documents we have to prepare for each country. Lots of documents, lots of information that would normally take months of a number of people probably putting that together. And we broadly have that content all available to us within nine hours of the end of our financial year, because at the end of the day, finances are just ones and zeros. And so we can automate the living daylights out of it. And therefore, a whole series of effort that would otherwise go into admin that would take my time effectively is struck down to just a sliver of time. I think that's one element of of it allows me to divert my or put my time in another direction. The second thing I would say is that the structure of AMF is very streamlined. We're very focused in what we do. There is a lot of complexity in many ways around distributing nets, particularly around the operations. That's the bit that really requires an awful lot of very careful attention to make sure nets get to people. And because we have a very simple series of steps, if you like, that we go through when we're carrying out our work, we're not a complicated organization. So strategically, certainly AMF has been designed um, to be operationally simple. So I would say that that simplicity plus technology um, allows me to have more time in certain areas than perhaps other people might have. Fantastic. That was almost bang on two minutes. So another question. What did you do before AMF? Did it lead naturally into this role or did it feel like a major career change? Major career change, really, because I certainly wasn't planning to be in this role. Did it lead into this role? In some ways, yes, because I guess the experiences that I've had and the things that I've learned over my career, I'll you know, go through it in 30 seconds in a moment, I think allowed me to not be brilliant at anything, but allowed me to have experiences and some degree of um, capability across a whole series of areas. And therefore, I could cover a lot of bases, particularly in an organization that just had two of us for the first 10 years. We grew to $50 million in revenue with just two of us. 
because of some of those strategic choices about how we were organizing what we did. So when I left university, I studied chemical engineering at university. Um, I went to join a strategy consulting firm and I went to live in Italy, work, work for a big American company and learned a lot in those four years about strategy and about business and about getting things done. I then went to business school, learned a huge amount at business school over two years, went to the States. And uh, when I came back from the US, moved back to the UK and worked in an exhibitions business. So a trade shows business, a very small company, so highly entrepreneurial. Um, and I was effectively commercial director. So I was in charge of one aspect of you know the, the organization's business, bringing in revenue with, with several others, uh, not just me alone. And that taught me all sorts of things about how to you know, secure funding, if you like. Then I worked in uh, one of the world's largest financial publishers, and uh, I set up a business within a PLC. Uh, that taught me an awful lot about um, operations and making things happen and persuading people to do things. Um, and that was the last step before I then effectively set up AMF. So a whole series of different um, experiences that meant that I was, I felt um, uh, it was worth giving uh, a go to what I wanted to do with malaria. Fantastic. So would you mind briefly telling the story of how you went from organizing a swimming fundraiser for a horrifically burned child to running one of the most effective global health charities in the world? Yeah in two minutes well i suppose when we first set up amf there was a very simple aim raise funds purchase nets distribute them so that they ended up over heads and beds and make sure we had the data to prove it and in essence that very simple approach is the approach we take today if you layer on top of that very high levels of accountability being at the heart of what we do. So we don't accept sort of trust and we don't accept, well, it probably happened. We're ruthless about making sure we have the data to prove that what we say we will do happens. That is a very important or very helpful thing to be able to then be transparent about in talking to people about what you're doing in being accountable you tend also to embrace efficiency and so that combination of accountability at the heart of what we do being really transparent always aiming to be highly efficient in the way we go about our work means that in the causal area that is malaria that clearly independent of us arguably you know is a a strongly, a highly impactful area to be operating in, that combination, I guess, has led us to be independently judged by others to be, you know, pretty efficient and impactful at what we do. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, often comes up in a, a thinking around effective altruism that it, it can be surprising that people don't focus on this kind of accountability and uh, measurement when they're making charities. But it does seem to be the case that it's not the the thing that most people are thinking about when they're starting charities. Why was that something that mattered to you? Yeah, I feel like when you were when you had the the popularity of this swimming fundraiser, which like led into AMF, it could naturally you could have started a charity on something that was salient to you or something that was nearby. Why was it that, that malaria appealed? I mean, the reason that, that malaria was the focus was because when we did a organized a 
a swim for a burns victim, a small child called Terry, who was very badly burnt um, when she was two. And that led to 10,000 people swimming from a plan of having three people swimming. And that was very surprising. And we, you know, I learned um, a number of interesting things from that. I guess most importantly, how terrific people can be in saying, yep, we'll help. When the notion crossed my brain of trying to get a million people to do something, you know, the next year or in a couple of years time, when you think about where you want to direct the funds we might raise from that, it was very clearly low income countries was was going to be of interest rather than high income countries. So not heart disease and cancer, but HIV, AIDS, TB, malaria, landmines, freshwater, diarrhea, you know, these sorts of issues, whereas we all know there is um, a significantly larger impact per dollar than in, in the high income countries. Um, and when I discovered that if I, you know, I, when I went through each of the six or seven things that I was considering and scratched beneath the surface, there were reasons to dismiss all the others, but seven jumbo jets full of children under five or the equivalent thereof dying every day from malaria and it being the disease, the single largest disease killer of pregnant women in the world, yet the most eff effective thing we could do was have people sleep under a bed net was something that was pretty engaging and i like the idea of raising money for nets rather than for drugs you know big bad pharmaceutical companies might come to mind for some people so malaria was the was the obvious uh, target if you like and five million nets were going out at that time and the need was 205 million and so gap so you know let's see if i can do something to try and help that yeah i mean it's fantastic it makes total sense in in retrospect as well i was just wondering at the time, had you been thinking about global health before that? Or was it just the size of the amount of money you thought I might be able to raise that made you think about it in this way? Like, what what prompted that? Well, actually, it was more random, perhaps, in some ways than that. I wanted to try and get a million people to do something. I was inspired by somebody I met in the US a number of years ago, who, when she was 18, raised a million dollars um, for a cancer charity. And I thought, wow, a million dollars, that's a very large amount of money. And here we're going back to the 80s. So we're going back a long time ago when she raised that money. I heard about it a little bit uh, a few years after that. And so the idea with with World Swim, uh, you mentioned that um, when we started, Toby, was was to try and get a million people to do something. And, and my aim was actually to do that for two years, spend a year planning it and then a year organizing it. And then I was going to go back and get a proper job. So no, there was no intention of me you know, there's no forethought about how much money can we raise. It's just let's do, you know, one thing. And I think, you know, it's very difficult. If I asked you what you're going to do in the next year, you probably got a good answer for me. The next three years, next five years, it becomes more challenging. I certainly had no vision that far in advance. And so I guess my aims were just, I want to get a million, I want to try and get a million people to swim. I think we can raise some money. It will raise some awareness because, wow, a lot of people don't know about this thing called malaria, as far as I could tell from talking to a lot of people and doing some reading and so on. And so the idea was, let's see if we can do something. I'm really up for doing it. And I've got some plans as to how I'd like to do it. But then this will be a one off. But but it attracted a lot of support and interest. And a number of individuals said, you can't stop now. And, and nor did I want to, because I thought, hey, we, there's something here. Um, and then we sharpened our focus and, and and our you know operational elements over the years sort of became much more refined. Uh, but broadly, the strategy we started out with in those first two years, I guess, has remained the case for the next 17. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, a little bit of a different question here. What is your top advice for new charity entrepreneurs? 
Wow, that's a really broad question, and and I, I guess yeah, a really good one because I, I it's, I've been asked it before. But I guess the first thing I would say, uh, and I'm uh, echoing some words or stealing some words from Dustin Moskovitz. Um, he gave a talk at Berkeley, I think, a number of years ago, where his advice to people in setting up a charity, if that's what you're referring to with charity entrepreneurs, is there's only one reason for you to do it, and that is because you can't not do it. And I guess that talks to you know, a very, very high level of interest and a passion in doing something. You, you don't do it for reasons of, you know, money or control or, you know, title or whatever else it is. You do it because you feel really strongly about it, because that strength of feeling and commitment will take you through the inevitable tough times that most people experience um, where something doesn't go right for some reason. So I think that's the first thing is that sort of, you know, does it sort of come from here, you know? this bit of you in terms of you know saying i want to do it um i think there's some practical advice i would you know get, i do give people when they're setting up and and in the early stages of charities and i work with quite a lot, a lot of charities now in, in that capacity but the first thing i would say and and it's not as though one size fits all but i think i've, I've yet to come across a charity who wouldn't have found this helpful for them firstly is to raise three years money up front so that you don't find you've raised a year's money, six months in, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to run out of money in six months' time. I need to start focusing on fundraising. It also it, it also acts as a really good acid test as to whether or not you've got support out there from people. I mean, the other two pieces of advice I, I often find I give is don't write a business plan. Just sit down with your voice in front of somebody who's going to fund you. That's your start. And just tell them what it is you're going to do. And if you can't do it in a minute, then something is probably wrong and bring a software engineer in house. That's the other thing I would say, which maybe most people do these days, but it's key. Great. Yeah. Thank you. So, yeah, you, you mentioned earlier that you it has been important from the start that you're going to be collecting information from the people who are distributing the bed nets. How do you collect information from those people and then collect feedback from the end recipients of bed nets if you do and how does that feedback inform the program we do collect um, a lot of information from the, the recipient of bed nets primarily through our post distribution monitoring program so we distribute nets but it doesn't stop there millions of nets go out um, to millions of households we then fund at amf what we call pdms post distribution monitoring where we go back on a nine monthly basis to one and a half percent of the households that receive nets randomly selected um, to establish net presence use and condition and during that process there is a lot of exchange of information captured within a series of questions all of which are pretty much focused on can we take actions on the basis of the answers because yes you can get Sort of anecdotal information that can sort of make you think but really you want to gather information that is usable in some way and so the post distribution post distribution monitoring survey or questionnaire that we ask allows us to understand aspects of use of nets and other household relevant parameters if you like but we're not generally adjusting course dramatically because there is a simple truth that malaria is transmitted by malaria carrying mosquitoes they generally bite between these hours 10 o'clock at night two in the morning if you cover people with a net at that time and even if it has holes and rips and tears because it's a long-lasting insecticidal net and mosquitoes don't do a aerobatics maneuver through a hole they land on the net pick up insecticide and that causes knockdown kills them 
that you know sort of that's what works so it, it's sort of refining information that we gather more than anything else rather than any sort of fundamental you know direction change we might we might want to embark upon awesome thank you if you were starting amf today is there anything that you would be doing differently i thought about that a lot because i find it's unsatisfactory that my answer to that question is no because i i sort of think surely there's something i would have done differently but when i think about the main things that happened when i started amf i think i, I do them all again in that order you know thinking about what it is i want to do and why and how i'm going to do it and now can i get the financial backing so that i've got a number of years money in the bank even though I've literally done nothing. So there's somebody else that sort of shares the belief and the vision, if you like. And then who are the right people I put in place to execute on that and make it happen? And, you know, and, and I guess it gives evidence to the simplicity um, of what we did at AMF at the start. And I guess what we still do today and that it was just Andrew and, and, and I, my colleague, Andrew and I for, the first 10 years andrew and i'd worked together in a previous life he was my head of technology in a previous life so we knew each other well and we know each other very well now because we worked together for more than 20 years and and andrew is very very talented as a software engineer effectively and so i had a very clear view of what we needed to do and also through discussions with the previous swim for terry and I'd seen how terrific people were, both in the corporate environment as an individual volunteers. I felt there was a possibility of putting significant support in place pro bono that would give us access to supporters because they put their hand up and said, hey, I'm going to help. And additionally, we wouldn't have to spend money that many other charities have to. And your percentage min rates look really bad. So those key things that we did at the start, I'd, I'd do again. Great, thank you. I like this one. Can you talk us through, as transparently as you can, the costs and benefits of being so transparent? <laughs> Good question. I think, I, I, I'll answer that. I might need more than two minutes for this one. I think the first thing I'd say is that you need to you need to come up with the right ideas and sort of processes, first of all. I mean, that's a sort of starting point. You know, the vision and plan of what you want to do that you're going to be transparent about. You know, that's thinking time. There's no cost to that. Then you need to deploy the relevant technology. There's not a lot of cost involved in that. It's more of a sort of mindset of how you're using technology that allows you to gather data, echo out data, share data. So overall, the sort of process here about what you're going to be doing and how, you, you know, how you're going to execute on being transparent, there's not much cost in that. I think when you're transparent, you tend to keep things simple because you're communicating to people so you need to keep things simple and that allies very closely with efficiency you tend to become really quite efficient so the costs i think are sort of relatively low in being transparent maybe somebody will come up with a cost i haven't thought about but can't think of one big one um what does transparency do in terms of its benefits wow lots i mean in some ways mm -hmm. i'm going to echo some of the words I, I mentioned before it facilitates accountability no question um, it helps you become more efficient um, because you're being transparent. Um, I think it drives the use of technology throughout the organization because you're 
wanting to share things. So you've got to use technology to get it quickly and echo it out. I think that ultimately leads when you're transparent to high levels of confidence in the organization. We never deal in trust, but we don't ask for people's trust, but we do want to develop people's confidence in us and partners, others. And I think, it, I guess, extending that, it encourages support from donors and all of that allows us to have more impact. So, you know, you can see the key words there in the benefits, costs pretty low. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good answer to a pretty broad question. So thank you for that. How <laughs> how does the availability of malaria vaccines change AMF strategy going forward, if at all? It doesn't for the moment. And that's because the malaria vaccines that we have at the moment, whilst they are um, fantastic additions to the, the toolbox, uh, the tools that we use to fight malaria, um, I think it is reasonable to say that they're rel relatively modest tools. Unbelievably fantastic scientific breakthrough. And the scientists that have achieved that, um, are, you know, are to be congratulated hugely because this is the first time we've had a vaccine for a parasite. You know, COVID et al. is, you know, is a virus, as we all know. So that's been a, a major breakthrough. I think the comparison... I would use when it comes to how useful a vaccine will be. So RTSS and M21 are the two vaccines, and they have broadly a 35 to 65% efficacy. And I, I may be wrong, but my understanding is that the second vaccine is may well be heading towards, you know, a similar 35 to 50% efficacy. And I do apologize to the vaccine scientists if I'm explaining that incorrectly. I think it's useful to look at polio, four parameters you want to look at. What percentage of the population benefit from the vaccine? Polio, 100%. How effective is the vaccine? Polio, 100%. How many administrative events with polio? One, on a sugar cube or an injection. Are there any cold chain uh, logistics? Polio vaccine, none. If you have to refrigerate, obviously it's more expensive. With the, with the malaria vaccines, we're looking at 35 to 50-ish percent Efficacy, we're looking at a subset of the population, albeit an important one under fives, but only a subset of that. Three administrative events, one month apart, and another one a year later, and cold chain logistics. So it's not quite there yet. We hope the scientists, you know, the same science, scientists or others will build on those success. And maybe in the next, I'm, I'm led to believe, seven to 10 years, we'll be talking about a vaccine in, in slightly different terms. Or we hope so. Awesome. I mean... I guess I wonder, like, how uh, how would it change your strategy? Like, how closely are you following it? If it, you know, if if it gets rolled out in a specific country, would would this make a difference to how you prioritize where your where your bed nets are distributed? We are following it very closely, and potentially it would. And I think what we have to look at is what is the most effective means of preventing malaria. There are certain things that I think we could do in a, in, a, in a vaccine environment that would leverage the capabilities and strengths that we have. So I could see there being a future in which AMF might say to donors, we've done some work over the last year or 18 months or two years where we've explored operationally how we could contribute to vaccine rollout or distribution. And we think we have a role to play. And so if people would like to contribute to us, this is what we're going to do. So I could see that happening potentially in the future, because I think some of the 
the strengths and experiences that we've had over the years might put us in a position where we could assist, but we would look at that very closely to see whether or not AMF was the right organization. It might be that, you know, there are other organizations that are better placed than us. We'd have to, we'd have to evaluate that. Thank you. So yeah, another question on your distributions. So a forum user called Jay Bentham asks, I noticed that on your distribution page, you have distributions penciled in for the De uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo up to 2025. Are these distributions contingent on additional funding? If not, which countries would you be most likely to expand your distributions to in 2024 and 2025 if your funding gap was closed? So anything that we publish um, is funded. Um, we don't announce um, a country or a region in a country uh, publicly unless it's funded because we need to sign a legal agreement with um, the government. And uh, it would not be the right order if we were to make public that we were going to fund nets for a particular area if we hadn't had all the very important operational and data related elements of a legal agreement fully signed up to. So they are funded. There are still huge gaps in DRC in the 2024, 25, 26 period. In fact, $145 million worth of gaps, which means that currently the Global Fund ourselves and the American government who are all contributing funding to the DRC three-year campaign, because we're looking at a three-year campaign. It's not done year by year. You're talking about a country that is two-thirds the size of Western Europe and is, has some very challenging logistics. So lead times are really, really, you know, they're, they're, they're two or more years in a sense at minimum. So we've got roughly 62% of the population able to be covered and 38% not able to be covered. And none of the three funding partners have any idea where more funds are going to come from yet. And so we're very, very worried. And I'm afraid the numbers will translate into unless we close that gap. And as I say, we have no idea where the funding is going to come from. It already includes some projection of how many, how much will come in over the next sort of couple of years. We're looking at about 30,000 people dying. So it's a really critical situation. Other countries where we've got gaps in funding are Nigeria, Mozambique, Cameroon, Uganda, Chad, South Sudan, Zambia, um, Guinea, and, and there are others. So we've got more than a $300 million gap right now that we could allocate. So significant opportunities. Yeah, I mean, just a, a follow up on that. It's, you know, it's really intense to be working on something where there's 30,000 people kind of in the balance on this, on just this particular aspect. How do you keep the kind of right level of motivation to work on this so that it's it's obviously urgent, but it doesn't feel overwhelming? Because, yeah, I mean, it's good. AMF's got so big and it, it, there's a lot of people involved in this now. Yeah, it got so big, but there are only 13 of us. I mean, it's still a small team. I, I guess I, none of us need any more motivation than I guess that those numbers in that one country. And there are, you know, there are at least 10 countries that are like that, that, you know, people die and people fall you know, really sick because they don't have something as simple as a bed net. So I, I guess no extra motivation needed. And, you know, I guess I'd say two things about myself. Um, one is that I am the world's greatest cynic when it comes to charity, I'm afraid. And if I thought I was cynical 19 years ago when I set up MF, boy, am I cynical now, given what I've seen in international aid. Um, there are some really, really good organizations out there, but there are some things that happen 
that are led by others that is not very good at all, which is why we do what we do in the way we do it. We focus on data. Um, we're not perfect. We don't have all the answers. We learn all the time, but we're very driven by a particular approach um, that we we stick to. Um, and I, I think it's a very honest one and it's focused on data. Um, I suppose when you are thinking about hundreds of millions of dollars, it's natural for all of us to think, well, what what difference can I make? I mean, these these numbers are huge. But every two dollars matters. You know, people who know AMF will will know that refrain. Every two dollars broadly buys a net and that net protects two people. And I can tell you that net's pretty important for the two people who sleep under it. So there's no amount that is too small, so to speak, or inconsequential. And we do the best we can and we work as hard as we can within limits. You know, we don't work 20 hours a day. That wouldn't be productive anyway in the long run. And we just try and work efficiently and smart. And so I'm constantly trying to think how we can do things better to, you know, close funding gaps. And, and you know, we get people giving us $100 and $1,000, and then some people give us much more. And whenever a donation comes in, it's thrilling because we know what we can do with it. You're on mute. You've gone on to mute. Toby. There you go. There we go. I was just yeah, saying, yeah, thank you. And also, like, you're doing great on sticking to the two minutes. It's almost exact. So, yeah, there's a question kind of related here. Now that you have a bigger team, um, have you found that comes with, you know, more overhead in, in people management and internal communications and stuff like that? What have been the difficulties of growing the team out from a two-person team for a decade to massive team of 13? Bottom line is not much of a difficulty because we've only gone from two to 13. So we're still, you know, you know, a family in that sense, you know, where you know, we, we, you know, strong communication between the vast majority of people most of the time. I mean, not everybody speaks to everybody every day, but we're remote. So we're, we don't have offices, which means that we have the benefit of then being able to choose from, you know, talent pool that is, you know, all over the world in many cases, although there are limits because we need time zones to coincide broadly to be efficient clearly there have been when you grow from two to five to seven to ten to thirteen you're spending more time on recruiting you're spending more time on on developing people but those are all you know pretty pleasurable things you come across some great people and what we're always trying to do is sort of square peg in square hole is finding people who've got the background the characteristics desire talents that sort of fit what we try and do and it's really rewarding when you know a number of people have been with amf for a long time now and you know their level of knowledge is very very high their abilities are you know really really strong and we're bringing on others in the same way who you know doing a really good job so you know modest you know it's 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 been a it's been a, a great a great run over the last five or six years when we've added people to the team brilliant yeah, another question, I guess, about how you run this organization. AMF fundraises separately for its operational costs and for the direct costs of its interventions, as far as I understand. How important <laughs> has this been for AMF's growth and its popularity? I think that the, going back to the point I made about putting three years' money in place, I didn't want to have to worry about raising money and take my eye off the sort of operational ball, if you like. And we've been very fortunate in having a small group of donors, three effectively, 
who've who've said, you know, we'll 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 fund the central cost sort of in perpetuity, pretty much. I don't want to take their generosity for granted going forwards because for the money we might need in three years' time, we haven't received yet. But you know, that seems to be the way that they view us. And I think it's been very helpful that our overheads uh, as an organization are low. So I think the average of the last five years is our overheads as a percentage of revenue have been about 0.6 or 0.7%. So obviously that's really quite low. And partly that's because we don't pay for anything other than 11 salaries of the 13 staff, 11 draw a salary. We have some expenses when people fly to Africa for obvious reasons. But banking, accounting, legal, website, offices, translation, you name it, we don't have it. It's zero because we have a lot of pro bono support. So we put that in place and that's covered. And there are a number of large donors that provide funding that covers the monitoring costs, which are significant. For every hundred million we spend on nets, we spend about seven or eight million on monitoring because we monitor the living daylights out of things we do in the countries in which we operate. They're also covered effectively which means that we can say honestly to donors and potential donors, if you give us $10, we will spend $10 buying nets because everything else is covered. It is incremental. We will buy another $10 worth of nets. And that's a really simple message to be able to share with people. Yeah, that's great. I Yeah, I mean, this is another really interesting part of AMF is that the amount of pro bono support that you get and... I mean, presumably volunteer support in your in the distribution because people physically have to give out these nets. How does how does that happen, and how did you uh, arrive at that way of doing things? So we fund the nets, and other co-funding partners fund the non-net costs. So the non-net costs are shipping, in-country transport of nets, registration across millions of households. So lots of health workers visiting households and gathering data, and then the distribution of the nets as as typically the next step. So we fund the nets at roughly $2 a net. And the global fund or the American government fund the non-net costs roughly $2 a net. So if we're putting $20 million worth of nets into Uganda, as we've just done, and, and are closing out the distribution there, the non-net costs would have been funded by or were funded by the global fund. So we partner with them. So there's no there's no volunteering going on there. There are some volunteer activities that go on in country but the work that's done in country is done by people who are paid per dms and are on salaries it's just that we don't pay for that so when there's a funding gap of uganda had you know 140 million dollars worth of funding need for the campaign i think the global fund put in 80 million if i'm not mistaken the american government put in 20 million and there was a gap of 40 million so we said we'll come in with 40 million to buy the nets because the case was made in terms of high malaria genuine funding gap we funded in fact it was 20 million dollars we put in i beg your pardon and we bought roughly 10 or 11 million nets and the non-net costs were funded by others so that part is a partnership not volunteer helping country that that wouldn't work for a, a nationwide logistical campaign thanks i mean that makes a lot of sense i was yeah i was wondering how that part of things works <laughs> so yeah that's very interesting so yeah, another thing that potentially could change the way you think about this going forwards is the rise in insecticide resistance. Yeah, how has how has this changed your uh, estimations of the impact of bed nets? The impact's not gone down very much. I mean, it's gone down by you know a number of percentage points, perhaps. And we haven't done any particular work to say is it three, is it five, is it eight, is it perhaps as much as ten. 
what has happened is that new products have been developed. So rather than having, let's call it a standard net that's got a pyrethroid on it, then we've got nets that have got other active ingredients on it. In one case, a chemical called PB, PBO, piperonyl butoxide, which is a chemical that's safe for humans, but it switches off in the mosquito, the mechanism that causes resistance. So, aha, we're back in the game when it comes to lower levels of, of, of knocking out mosquitoes, not zero, but lower levels because they've developed some resistance. And there are other types of nets that are being developed. When I say types of nets, other, other active ingredients being added to nets. So we have a chemical called piriproxifen and one called chlorphenopa. There will not be a test at the end of this hour, but these are chemicals that are added to nets because they act on mosquitoes in a different way and deal with the resistance. And some of these products are showing really promising results. AMF a number of years ago put eight and a half million dollars effectively into a randomized controlled trial to gather the data that, that that would allow us to say whether or not these PBO nets I mentioned uh, worked and if they did in what circumstances and to what degree and and that was a, a very important RCT because it gave us the data gave all of us the data that said that this is how these nets work and now there are tens of millions of these nets being deployed annually um, because we all needed the data to support what products we distribute to deal with insecticide resistance. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. So this is, I mean, a few of these are questions from Habiba. This is, so this is Habiba, who's starting a charity called Spiro to work on TB. Yeah, I had a few questions. Some of the ones about starting the charity are from her. So she asks, in what situations... Does it seem like a good idea to start a new, initially small charity rather than supporting existing efforts? So, for example, looking at the outside, looking from the outside at Malaria Work in 2005, when you started your charity, one might have felt like this was a huge area with a lot of attention from big global health organizations. And it'd be surprising if a new small organization could be able to bring something different and useful that existing organizations couldn't. So yeah, how did you how did you think about this, and how do you think about this question? Sometimes there are lots of tankers on the sea, and there aren't enough speedboats. And I guess the smaller organisations can do things slightly differently. They're more agile, you know, can do things in a very different way. You know, maybe a tanker doesn't fo focus on data, but a speedboat does. You know, I don't want to take the analogy forward because I'll probably drown. But uh, no pun intended. But I suppose it's whether. You know, in reflecting in the field you're looking at, is there a need for some activity or intervention or some way of doing thing, doing something that doesn't currently exist? It is not the case that um, incumbents have got it right. You know, often times have moved on and they haven't moved on and it's really time for a change. And it's I guess it's assessing whether there is an organization that's really well placed to pivot or whether a new organization is needed. And I guess a new organization often comes with, you know, people with that passion I mentioned earlier and desire and commitment. Maybe they bring in new funding, uh, which can be helpful for the particular causal area. So I think if, if you assess there's a, there's a, a need for newness, then, Hey, go for it, develop, you know, try it because the worst that can happen is you can fail dot, 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 and learn a huge amount from doing so. So that's not really failure. I guess it. You know, there'll be pros and cons of any individual situation, but I guess that would be my high level take. Great, yeah, thank you. 
on what frequency do you think about organizational goals and strategy internally? So do you set quarterly goals, think about big picture strategy annually? Yeah, how do you how do you think about strategy when do you course correct? Yeah. I guess all the time. I think strategy is is a fancy word for choices. And you know, I don't think choices are made on a quarterly basis. Choices are made on a daily basis multiple times a day. And often the somebody might look at you, you know, three months on and say, Oh, you know, you sort of adjusted your strategy a bit here. And you may have done because uh, you're making slightly different choices, but it's probably made up of, uh, in most cases, the fact that you're doing 50 things slightly differently and better. So uh, often it's not about a major strategic change. I guess you could say that those choices lead to improvements, uh, but we're constantly um, thinking about, are we doing this in a way that in, that that is maximizing or optimizing our impact? Are we collecting data in the right way? Are we? Can we do it without spending so much money? Should we be doing, doing things we're not doing to give us greater confidence in some of the data in this particular circumstance? Should we be deploying technology in a, in a new way because now we can scan barcodes on nets or whatever it might be? And, and therefore, we're, you know, I, I'm constantly thinking about that. At the same time, the, the flip side of, of, of these sorts of this thinking and these sort of choices is risk. And, and a lot of what I do each day is thinking about risk, is de-risking certain situations so things don't happen all the way from, you know, people you want in the organization not leaving, people in the organization developing so we maximize their enjoyment and their productivity to maximizing the percentage of nets that are overheads and beds. Um, so I guess the answer to your question is all the time. Yeah, so you've mentioned the the work of the Global Fund. So what's your opinion of the other kinds of work that the Global Fund funds for malaria prevention? So other than other than bed nets. And would you mind like outlining briefly in your answer where else they fund? Sure. So I think when it comes to most things in life, the portfolio approach is, you know, it's pretty good. And when it comes to malaria control, there are a portfolio of things that we we need to do. I mean, the jigsaw puzzle that is the solution to malaria has probably got about 12 pieces in it. Um, nets, rapid diagnostic testing kits, indoor residual spraying, ACTs, artemisinin controlled therapy. It's the drug you take three days of it flushes malaria parasite from your system. Very, very effective health system strengthening you know, that runs from making sure that malaria data is recorded accurately, because if it's not, then we don't know what we're dealing with and we don't know if we're improving, to the training of staff in health centers to deal with blood slide analysis of, you know, potential, you know, people with potentially with malaria. So the Global Fund uh, effectively puts money into all of the aforementioned and more things, and it's really important it does. So RDTKs, ACTs, health system strengthening, or HSS, as we refer to it, are all really important. You can't not do any of these things. Sometimes in a country, you get to the point where health system strengthening has really suffered because there's just not been enough money and there have been other priorities and urgencies, if you like. And it gets to the point where you've sort of got to go, whoa, 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 time out. We've got to put money into health system strengthening because unless we do that, things are going to start to fall apart and undermine you know aspects of these fundamental programs um so i'm a big fan of money going into all of these things 
I know that you know there are evaluators that look at AMF and 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 others and look at the net program, but you can't just do a net program. It's really important. It's funded well, but 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 you can't do that and have other things at sort of really low levels. Other otherwise the you know so it's you you need the engine in the car, um you know funding nets, but you also need need the wheels and you know a steering wheel and some other things. You know probably a bad analogy, but there we go. No, no, I think that makes sense. Yeah, and that's good to hear because I think often when you hear about AMF as an example in effective altruism, it's not as part of an integrated picture of how we're tackling malaria. It's as an example <laughs> of exactly what AMF does. So yeah, I've mostly heard about bednet. So it's great to hear that there's, you know, so much else going on. And I should add in um, that in that in that jigsaw puzzle, Toby, sorry to interrupt, is that SMC seasonal malaria chemophylaxis is, is now a you know a really important part of the toolbox that we have but again if we had 12 pieces to the jigsaw puzzle before that is the solution to malaria it's now 13 so right yeah yeah that makes sense yeah so someone mentioned that amf has leveraged corporate support and partnerships perhaps more than other charities do does that seem true to you and if so is it something that you think lean nonprofits should be doing more I think the simple answer to that is, uh, yeah, it seems so, that we do leverage it more than others. And I guess the second, the answer to your second question is yes. So I think we're within our two minutes, so I should probably expand on that. It's been really humbling over the years to go to people, to phone people up and say, who do I speak to in your industry who'd be willing to do this thing pro bono for free? Because I don't think you need $5 more than a couple of kiddies in Africa need a bed net. And I can honestly say that in, in 19 years, when I've asked that question, I've obviously chosen the person I've spoken to, you know, with intent and carefully. And, and you know, I, I know my ground and, and so on. So there's some preparation involved. But in 19 years, I've never, ever had any other answer to that question in any other in any area in which I've asked it than the one word answer I get. And that is me. And I go, really? And they say, yeah, we'll help you. And I think what that shows is that there are a lot of people out there who are willing to help. Obviously, there is a there is a sort of strategy behind asking and what you ask for and how you ask for it, um, which I probably don't have time in two minutes to go into. But, you know, and it's not particularly rocket science. It's largely um, rooted in common sense. But I think there are certainly we've experienced terrific support and I would be I know other charities have, uh, some of whom I, I've, I now work with, but I think there are very few charities, I would argue, that probably don't have a number of areas in which they could reduce costs and improve through collaboration some of the things they do by engaging pro bono support, because there are lots of people that are willing to help. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's great to hear that it's uh, been so successful i know that it might take a lot longer to express this but do you have any tips for that how is why do you think that's been the case is it based on how you pick these people like is it networking yeah what's what's going into that success it's not networking actually and it's i, I chose not to network in any stage of setting up amf i mean I, I i guess i probably had a rolodex that i could have dipped into but i really didn't want to because i didn't want to people I didn't want people to say, oh, what's Rob up to now? Yes, we'll support him. I wanted it to be a somebody who, you know, did not know me and looked at the, mm. you know, the the merits of what I was suggesting. And if they were to say, 
yeah, look, this is really interesting. We, we're happy to back this. Then I think you, you have a better indication you're onto something. I think it's picking areas of support um, where the ask you're going to make of the people you're going to approach is not such that they're going to go, wow, that's a lot. You know, it's a relatively modest contribution and it might be a more significant contribution in year one. But then because of that contribution and the work and the heavy lifting that's done, the support you're effectively going to ask of them is going to be much reduced in future years. So mm. it doesn't hit that screen of people saying, wow, we're really spending a lot of money effectively or foregoing a lot of revenue in providing this support. I think I think there's also you develop some experience of who to ask and sometimes when to ask them and at what stage in your progress it's right to ask them. And so those factors have all been part of when I have approached people and in the first couple of years of of establishing MF, there was a lot of thought that went into that. But what I described to people was just a genuine situation and said, would you be in a position to help? So there was no cleverness. It mm. was really just going to somebody and saying, this is where we need help, will you? And and we had terrific responses. Right. Yeah, thank you. What does the relationship between AMF and the effective altruism community look like from your side? Uh, it's a pretty warm one. I mean, certainly my sentiment towards the EA community is pretty warm because significant funds have flowed to us from effective altruists. They've also flowed to us from many others, some of whom have not heard of what, you know, of EA and what it's about. But when I first spoke with Peter Singer many years ago and with Toby Ord and with Will, Musca Will McCaskill and, and others, there, there was clearly a sort of alignment of sort of thinking of, you know, how we saw the world in some ways, which I guess in a very uncomplicated way is, you know, there are a lot of opportunities to help people in a pretty fundamental way. And so I, you know, personally, you know, have that view. And I think a lot of people within the EA movement have a fundamental generosity um, because it is still remarkable to me the money that is donated to us by some people in terms of a percentage of you know what they earn so what we try and do from our side is to be as communicative as possible both in terms of being um really open and transparent with our work and data that surrounds it and when people approach us from within the ea community and say hey we've got some questions or could you appear here and could you you know tell us about how you do something because we want to find out more so it's a it's a you know pretty warm one for which we're very grateful right well yeah this has been great i feel like i've learned a lot and there's just some some really interesting questions on the ama and thank you so much again for your time pleasure thanks a lot toby